Podcasting from anywhere other than a jail cell, this is Soberholic, a podcast created to encourage, equip, and inspire you to overcome your hurts, habits, and hangups. And now, your show hosts, Roger and Jason. Welcome to Soberholics, everybody. We are in still in lockdown mode uh, with the whole COVID-19 situation, but it's made us and it's helped us to meet new people, um, and we have... Andrew Mann joining joining us uh, on this episode of Soberholic, and we're going to hear his story, and he's going to talk to us, and and he is up in New Jersey, you said? Correct, New Jersey, yes. So, I want to welcome him to the show, and let's just go ahead and just dive right in it. Um, Andrew, just tell us a little bit about yourself, and, and, and we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, yep, my name's Andrew Mann, and I'm from New Jersey. I live about 15 minutes outside of New York City. We've been hit pretty hard up here with this uh, COVID-19 thing. I think we're the worst spot in the nation, so it's been a little crazy, like you said. But yeah, we're getting through it. Um, so to start off with my story, yes, I, uh, I grew up in a, in a very dysfunctional household, Um I had a very abusive childhood, which I think was really the start of uh, my addiction process started back then in childhood. When I go back and I look through it, I I developed anxiety and depression as a young child. Um, And I didn't really know how to deal with those things. And the first way that I thought was just finding something that made me feel outside of myself. The first time I smoked a cigarette, um, it wasn't so much to fit in. It was, I liked the way it made me feel different. Like the little buzz I got from it, yeah. where the other kids were smoking it to be cool. I liked the way it made me feel the buzz. And, um, you know, by the time I was about 11 years old, I started stealing my parents liquor to fall asleep. So I would drink at night to make myself go to sleep. And, that was really, I, I love the way it made me feel, but I also was medicating the way I felt inside um, because I did not like the way I felt inside. And um, I just knew I had a different reaction to stuff like alcohol than other people did when they would drink it on the weekends and that would be enough. I wanted to drink all week long. And this was as a young child where, you know, most kids are thinking about their careers and getting good grades and sports. And I'm thinking about, you know, where can I find my next drink? And that's just, so at a very young age, I developed, um, I, as far as I look back, when I really look back on it, I can see that I was um, an alcoholic slash addict before, you know, as far back as I look. Um, so what ended up happening was I, I got prescribed a few um, antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs at 14. I was put on Xanax and actually an adult dose of it. So by the, through my whole high school career, I was drinking alcohol and on Xanax um, and other things, other drugs along the way. But, and this was something I was taking on a daily basis. And so. Hey, Andrew. Was, yes. Mm-hmm. As you, um, this is kind of a side note here, because I know this is a question I hear a lot, is that when, when you were prescribed the Xanaxes, um, it, it, I think you said 14, Correct. And, you know, you you, you say now that you've already started the addiction cycle, although you probably may not have known it then. I mean, you were using it to medicate. But when you were prescribed those, did you tell the doctor the the real reason you needed them? Or was it 
was you manipulating that conversation to where he would give them to you? I never told what was really going on with me um, because the real, what the doctor did was he prescribed, I said I was having anxiety attacks and that was, that was truthful. But the reason I was having the anxiety attacks, I never got into that. So I wanted the anxiety attacks, that was truthful, but I wanted, and the drugs worked for it at first, but it wasn't what I should have been was looking for. A normal person would have not just, let's take these drugs forever. It would have been, let's fix with a reason for these anxiety attacks. But in my mind, it was just, let's stay on the drugs. God, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It just no, that no, seems no, to be a common answer absolutely. for most people like us that struggle with drugs is that we, we never give the, the whole truth. We absolutely. give half truth to get what we need out of it. Right. And, and that often leads to more problems. Right. And it leaves doctors in a position where they can, it's really not a win for them. I mean, they can't treat us. We're not being honest with them. They really, it's, makes it impossible. So that, that led through, as you can imagine, a high school experience under the influence. So it wasn't, I just barely made it in high school, into college. I just barely made it out of high school and into college. I don't really know how I got accepted into college, but I did. Um, and it just sort of progressed from there um, until I ended up finding opiates. And when I found opiates, it was sort of the answer to all my problems. I had you know, I'd gone from marijuana to cocaine, and so I'd mess around with all the drugs. But when I found the real love was when I found opiates. And when the first time I took one of those, it was like my anxiety went away, my depression went away, and it was how I wanted to feel. And I just felt, I said, you know, if I can just stay like this, I'd be perfect. And uh, so at first it was the answer to my problems, but then it became a complete nightmare. And it took me, took control of my life to the point where I ended up um, basically all the things addicts do. We lie, we steal, go through all the problems. And I ended up becoming a homeless addict out on the street of Camden, New Jersey, which, you know, Camden, New Jersey, it's an awful place. But I went from Oxycontin to eventually heroin. And um, so it all started from this one pill and in which may not seem like a short time, but to me it really was. I progressed all along this way from this one pill to injecting heroin. And, um, you know, it got to the point where, like you guys had said, I, I wrote the book, Such Unfortunates. And the reason I named it that was because when I would started, when I first started going to AA meetings, I would hear about, and they'd read about such unfortunates in these people. And I always thought I was one of those people that would never get this. And I just figured I was too bad. I was beyond, I was just beyond help. And I really, and I believe that. And I did. And, and then one of the main reasons I wanted to name my book that is I wanted people to see that if I could get through this, they could get through this too. And what basically ended up happening was I had gone through, I did the, the rehabs um, where I sort of, just halfway did it. I would go in and I'd say, you know, okay, well, I'll do this part and I'll take this part and I won't do this part. And, you know, I wanted to do it on my own way and it never worked for me. It would work temporarily and then I'd always end up going back. And, you know, it got to the point where I really, um, some angels really came into my life and things had to get so bad that, I mean, I've been to jail. Um, I've overdosed and died twice where they had to bring me back. 
So when they talk about the ends, jails, institutions, and death, I've really been to all those. And, um, you know, when I, when I look at how, when I look at what I've been through um, and the way I was able to come out of it, I really do believe that my story, I do believe that if I can do this, anyone else can do this. I figure if you, if you get into the book and I really get into some graphic details in the book, I was really um, a down and out addict um, as the low as it gets. You know, I went to all extremes that you could ever imagine. Um, it's not something I'm proud of, but I wanted to, it was actually a healing experience to get all that stuff out. That was one of the things that I also, another part of my recovery um, was getting that stuff out, uh, which I think is very important for other people that are looking to do recovery. But I wasn't able to heal until I got that stuff out, until I shared that with someone else. I noticed some of the the description of your book, you know, you're not the typical picture of what people would look at and say, oh, he's just a heroin addict or, you know, he's just a dope addict. It looks like that you came from an upper class family or at least middle class. And so, you know, it's not like you were always on the street there. Um, Just things went south for you, right? It did. Absolutely. That's exactly right. You know, on the outside, my family looked, you know, we weren't super rich, but we weren't poor. And, uh, you know, exactly. And you wouldn't have looked at us and said, you know, this is going on and this is what's going to happen, but it did, you know, and that's, and I think it's been more, it's been affecting a lot more like the middle-class America people. I think it's been coming a lot more into there, especially with the prescription drugs too. So I think a lot more, uh, you know, sadly, but that got it a lot more notice from the politicians and stuff too. As you was making that progression from, say, cigarettes to pot to cocaine to, you know, the opiates all the way to heroin, did you have in your mind, like some do, um, myself included in that some, um, I'm just going to try this new thing. Maybe it'll be cheaper to get high or whatever. That really wasn't my thing. I was always chasing a better high, but I always had that reserve in the back of my mind saying that I'll never shoot up. That's one thing I won't do. Did you always oh, say yeah, that? Forever. I would. Ne- I mean, I thought those people who did that were just, you know, that was something I would never come near in a million years. And, and, and I went there. And once I crossed that boundary, it just it was like, it, but I didn't, you know, and I had always been, I would never go there. Like, I just thought those people were nuts. You know, I just couldn't imagine how someone could actually do that. I know when I when I finally graduated, if you will, to the needle, um, my addiction like progressed times ten. You know, it it, it went really fast after that. Yeah, and of course, like you mentioned, it made me do things that I never dreamed I would do. But you you mentioned that there was angels in your life. Um, What what was that moment like? What happened to where something changed? Yeah, I was I was literally homeless on the street of Camden uh, with not a hope in the world. And some people um, came to sort of my rescue. Um, and it, I mean, I'm still in touch with them to this day and I'll be grateful to them. They're the first set of angels. And I had one other woman who came in that really, I, I think she was like an angel to me too. And I write about her in the book, but they actually came and said, you know, you can, there's a better way of life. You know, you can do this. I know you can do this. I know you're out here. 
you can get into this. And they helped me get into, get off the street, get into treatment. And, um, and I, I, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for them, you know? So by somebody not giving up on me and there's other people who they didn't have any connection to me. They had no reason, you know, and they still out of nowhere, out of just goodness of their heart said, listen, there's somebody struggling and we're going to try to help this person. And um, I still stay in touch with all of them. And I talk to one of them almost every night. So, um, you know, and I, I just, uh, you know, I, they mean the world to me. So I, I do believe in people that are angels and I've seen it. I've seen people that had no reason to come help me out. They didn't benefit in any way from it. They just did it. So as, as I've seen the bad side, I've also seen the good side of people too. So was there a point when you were like, when you were homeless on the street, was what, were you in any kind of denial that you had a problem at that point? Cause there was, there was a point in my recovery where I was homeless, but I was camping out like outside right. um, at a park. And so in my mind, I wasn't homeless <laughs> camping. <laughs> right, right. Were you ever in any kind of denial during that period? In the beginning, um, I was to a point I would, I would, I remember um, I was in uh, this transportation center trying to get warm because it was so cold out. And this girl said, you know, be careful. She said, don't fall asleep because the police will get mad at the homeless people. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not one of the homeless people. And, and I was, and I just, I it just, when she said that, I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. What do you mean they're going to get mad? I'm not doing and, and I was, you know, and I just, so it took a little while, but yes, there was a point like, okay, this is not really for real. This isn't for me, you know, but it was, I was just like everyone else, you know? So you're getting sober. So did you go to a, like a residential I did. facility? I did long-term. Yes. Yeah. Which, which I do recommend for a lot of people. I needed it. I needed a lot of time um, in that place. If you can, if you have the luxury of doing that, um, there was a great place up here called Integrity House and they'll take anybody. I mean, I had one pair of pants, no driver's license, which is another thing. A lot of rehabs will never take someone if they don't have ID. This place goes, I mean, they're, they're another sort of, amazing thing that happened that I was able to get in there. And, um, you know, the longer someone can stay in the better. It's just, I, no matter how good of intentions I had in a, a rehab, when I would get out and I was new, say after three weeks or something, no matter, I'd come out with all the best intentions, but you get out of that place and it's around you mm-hmm. and it can just I would just recommend it's always something. If you have a chance to go to a long-term treatment and anyone needs to go and take advantage of it, nine months of your life is not a lot of time to save your life. Yeah. I mean, I I tell, especially with opiate addicts, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of the post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Sure. You know, where it it can be six months to a year. Oh, absolutely. Before you even start to feel somewhat normal. So, um, you know, long-term, um, inpatient treatment is the way to go, especially with, with opiate addicts. So you, so you got sober. How long did you stay there? Uh, about nine months. Uh, yeah. A little bit under it. It was like eight. Uh, yeah. Just about nine months, a week under nine months. And so during that time is when you were like, I'm going to 
stick to this. Um, yes. I, you know, I'm going to go yes. hook, line, and sinker with recovery and what yeah. these people are saying. Yeah. Well, I, had, I had seen people said, you know, the day you get out of this place, go to a meeting. And I never took anyone's advice till the last time I did that. The day I got out, I went with somebody who had brought meetings there. And then it just kind of, it, it, there's something about doing that the day you get out and keeping that and really opening up to people and sharing, like some people were coming out of rehab and they're afraid to tell people they want to use. And it's like, listen, you know, we've all been there. You just, I, I, I recommend open up to people as much as you want to. If you feel like you want to use, tell people, you know, get, get that stuff out. And, um, you know, so that's, that's really what I had to do. I had to get out and I had to talk to people and, um, you know, the time started to build up. And for me, I wasn't somebody that could get a week of sobriety. So for me to get, I, I started to take things for, I started to not take things for granted, like having a driver's license, not being drug sick, having a job, having a credit card, having money, having stuff that I never appreciated before. But once you lost that stuff in addiction, once I got that back, I didn't want to lose that stuff. And I, I, I met an amazing woman, um, and it's been, you know, uh, about four, it'll be four years in May. Um, and for me, that's, you know, just, a, I couldn't get four days. Four days was like a, a unbelievable. So I never thought I would be sitting there telling anyone I have four years of recovery. Absolutely not. I just. Congratulations. So, <laughs> thanks. Thanks. And um, like I said, I wrote the book. What were you going to say? I was going to ask this question, and um, so so if you look at this, I mean, you look back at four years earlier in your life, you're walking into recovery, and oftentimes as we sit here and talk about stories like this, we forget what it was like at that mark. You know, when we first walked in the rooms of recovery, it's easy to say, yeah, we should do this, and, and now that we've been in recovery, we've made friends, it's much easier to talk about how we've struggled. Um, for our listeners that are hearing your story right now, that maybe have never made it to a group and they're still behind a computer screen trying to understand this whole addiction thing and really come to terms with addiction themselves to determine whether they're an addict or an alcoholic. Um, maybe they believe they are, but they're still struggling with the pride like you and I and others have, have dealt with. What is some advice you could give them as they walk into their very first recovery meeting to help overcome that fear? That's, that's a great question because I had a lot of that fear. Uh, I'm a natural shy person. And for me to get out um, and talk to people was difficult. Uh, and I would, a lot of times, if you have a hard time, a lot of people have a hard time raising their hand in the meeting. I would recommend staying after or coming before and trying to talk to someone. So you don't have a lot of people, sometimes I've heard this a lot, I'm not raising my hand in the front of the meeting and doing it. I would recommend come half an hour before the meeting, hang out, drink some coffee, stay a half an hour after the meeting, try to meet somebody either before or after. If you don't like doing that, if you can raise your hand and, and introduce yourself, that's great. I, I wish that was easy for me. There's some people that are like that, but if not try meeting someone one-on-one -on -one before and after the meeting. I think that's great advice because that's really what helped me because 
it's easy to slip in right after the meeting begins and then maybe exit out right before it ends so that you, you don't have to say the prayers. You don't have to really have a conversation. You can just listen and leave. But that's not really everything you're trying to get. That's not building community, which many groups offer. Uh, a lot of the time, the recovery portion really happens before or after the meeting. Um, and those intentional conversations that, you know, I get to get phone numbers from someone so that when I do um, face temptation, I've got somewhere to call because, um, you know, that's one reason we started this show is there's just not always a meeting. Um, we've never right. intended to replace a meeting, but sometimes there's just not a meeting. So what do you do in those times? And, you know, having people's phone numbers and someone to call and, and having, a, having enough, um, I guess, conversation with someone enough to trust them to call them is what what you need it's just really difficult to call a random stranger a temporary sponsor and just say hey i'm wanting to use so uh, i I get that no it is absolutely that's a good point so uh, absolutely great so how many times um did it take you before you got sober i know there's probably a bunch but like as far as treatment centers or maybe, yeah, maybe treat, treatment centers or court appointed type deals. I right. mean, is there about a, a, a number? At least, at least 10. Yeah. There was about 10 failures over the course of about 14 years. I had, um, the first couple I wouldn't even really say were efforts. Um, it took, uh, yeah, I'd say about 10 of those, there were 10 times that I went in and I came out and I failed. So I was not a first time winner. I wish I was, but I wasn't. They counted a few that weren't even efforts. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I just showed up. I had coffee. I had a few of them that were definitely non-efforts where I'm just waking up in a place and I'm like, where, what? Oh no, this thing's going to happen. I'm leaving tomorrow, you know? Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't even count those. (laughs) Yes. That's, Exactly. So here's a random question. You mentioned your, um, did you say girlfriend girlfriend that you've been dating now four years? Or was we're, engaged, we're engaged now. So yeah. Did you meet her in recovery? Um, she's actually not an addict. Okay. So, yeah. She's, I, ask, I, yeah. I ask that a lot because my wife is. I met oh, her in recovery. Is and that is not the place to go looking for a wife. I it's wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but if you can do it, it's. I know people have had great relationships for a long time that in recovery and they met each other. So right. I know everyone's against that, but I'm not recommending anyone do that, but congratulations for you. That yeah. led you, you right. her, and I've heard people that have had successes in it. Yeah. Roger actually doesn't recommend it to people either. Uh, I don't recommend it, but we've been married. Heck man, I think 14 years, 13 oh. years now, 13 or 14 oh, years. Yeah. Yeah, she was homeless, living in Walmart's parking lot when we met. But, um, you know, I met her in an AA meeting, but um, that certainly is not the way it normally works. But I asked that because, you know, I was like, maybe one of those times he was going where he really wasn't trying, he picked up and found a, uh, you know, his wife there. <laughs> no, no, but she's, she's, she's been unbelievably supportive. And, um, you know, she's just – she's – one of these people that has been, amazes me with her house supportive. She has to actually goes to meetings with me. She's not an addict. She'll go and sit there. So well, that was, she'll that go was, sit in an open meeting. So I think that's really cool that she does that. Well, that was fixed to be my question because, um, you know, as recovering addicts, we're taught to keep our recovery first. 
And that, that seems like it would be difficult to do if you had a spouse who was not in recovery. See, I've never had to face that personally, but I've had sponsees that dealt with that. Yeah. And so as they, when I've noticed that when people get sober, at first their wife says, yeah, go to as many meetings as you can, just get your life changed. Then their life gets better. Then they're like, okay, do you have to keep going to those meetings? Can't you, can't you hang out with me and go out to dinner? What about the kids and all of that? Uh, I have no idea how many times I've heard that exact same thing from other people. I've been blessed in that way, but yes, that's, it's a very difficult thing to balance. And you're exactly right. At first you hear, oh, they're so great. They want you to do it. But after a while, yes, I've heard that a bunch of times. So I'm glad that I am. I've been blessed in that respect. She's been supportive since the beginning. So that's been great. So tell me about your book. You said it's Such sure. Unfortunates is the name Such of Unfortunates. it. Such Unfortunates, yep. Named it right over there. There's the cover. It's back. Yeah, I... I now, show us the side of this thing, because I want sure. people to see that this is like a real book. Like my, I was telling you beforehand that my book is 100 pages. Yours is 440-something. Yes. So like, there is a lot of time that's went into this. It's yes. not just a... Uh, one that one time sitting, you're going to spend some time going oh, through yeah. this addiction process, what it was yeah. like in that, you know, really That's, detailing some of these things. I had had a couple friends that had died in this process and their parents had come to me and one, one's mother in particular. And she sat down with me and she was like, could you just tell me your story? I just want to know why you got it needed. And this was before I wrote the book. And when I started talking to her, she was like, if you could, write your story out. You don't know how many people you could help. And I was like, really? And then um, when I was actually in that treatment center, I had written a few paragraphs for one of my counselors. And she was like, your writing's amazing. Like the stuff you've been through, you could really help people. And then, um, like I said, people told me I couldn't write a book. They said, everyone says they're going to, and they never complete it. And so that kind of motivated me to say, oh yeah, all right. Well, and I did it. And I, I just refuse to give up. And I really, um, I've been amazed at how many people have written to me. This has helped me. You know, I was going to give up. And then I read this and your story is just like mine. It's just been, it's been an amazing, I thought maybe two people would buy the book and, and maybe, you know, if it helped one person, but I'd say I hear from people every other day, I hear from somebody about the book. And so it's really been an amazing thing. Um, and it was a healing experience for me. I mean, I got all that stuff out. There is no, there's no more anonymity with me. <laughs> yeah. It's all out there. But that was that was good. That for me, I sort of needed that. And um, and I'm kind of glad I got it all out now. And uh, it's been if I can help a few people with it, that's that's the greatest gift. So I, I've met a lot of amazing people through this. I've talked to people and. Um, you know, it's just been, it's been a great experience. So I'm, I'm looking at your book here on Amazon and I'm guessing that's probably the best way for someone to purchase your book, correct? Amazon, correct. Yes. Uh, and, and here on Amazon, for those who may be new to reading or even to the, the Amazon platform, 
Um, I'm looking at your book right now. It's got a four and a half star, four and a half star rating with 94 reviews. And that, that's really awesome. If you purchase anything on Amazon, you know, to go look at reviews and there's, I mean, there's Buku's a recovery books. I mean, you and I both know that, and, but you know, it's not so much about trying to compete with someone. It's about getting your story out there and showing someone, but 91 right. reviews is a testimony in itself. I haven't read all these reviews, but the few that I've read have been good or you wouldn't have a four four and a half star review, um, four and a half out of five. So that, that's awesome. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. Another thing that I noticed is that you're not in it for the money. Um, of course, the paperback, I think, is like 19 bucks, but the Kindle is like $5. Yeah. And so um, I, I know what you make off these books because yes. I've got my own. Yes. So it's not like you're doing this to get rich. You're getting That's this out right. to share the message of hope and healing. And so I've actually given it to free to some people that couldn't afford it. So, right. right. And so if you're, if you um, are looking, um, for something to give someone maybe in your family that's struggling with addiction, this is the book that you want to give someone. I mean, it's, it's going to show someone how they went from hopelessness to hope, you know, that how their mess got turned into a message. And this is usually what we're looking to give someone to show them there's a different way. And so, you know, I, I, I can't say that I personally read it, but I, I do know that from looking from the reviews, from looking at the description and from talking to you, it is definitely a book that I'm interested in reading and would recommend based on what I know. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Definitely. So, um, congratulations on writing Thanks. the book. I mean, Thanks. that is an accomplishment. I, I, I do know that. And as others told you, you wouldn't do it. You proved them wrong and you've earned your seat at being an addict and alcoholic and just in spite, trudging the road that no one else would go down. Yes. Yes. Very true. Well, this is what we do to close up all of our shows, and I believe Jason has them ready. If he's not, he's going to be getting them ready. But we close up every show with what we call the Final Four, and it's a way of us kind of getting um, uh, some answers out of you that we kind of – some are kind of meaningful. Some are just to get to know you more better, and some just to get to the bottom of some questions we've got. And so, Jason's going to kind of shoot these at you. I believe that you, he's already emailed these to you, so you yes. are prepared. We try not to just get some of these on the fly, because some are more difficult. I, yes. I couldn't get yep. some just on the fly. So, here you go, Jason. All right. All right. The final four. Number right. one, Sounds you good. name a book other than the Bible a book, movie, or a podcast that has changed the way you look at an area of your life? The book for me, that book, Lone Survivor by Marcus Luttrell. Um, it's a true story. It was also a movie uh, about Navy SEALs and Afghanistan. And um, part of that, you know, it just showed me uh, there were so many good things about it, but I really liked um the way he didn't give up and he got through anything at all costs. Um, and so it was a very inspirational book. So I like that a lot. The Lone Survivor. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen it? No. It's a, if you get a chance, Marcus Luttrell is the author. It's a, it's a great book. It's a true story. And so okay. it really is a great book. Number two, if you had a blank billboard to share advice with the world, what phrase would you put on it? If I can do this, you can do this. Mm, I like that one. <laughs> That's true. All right. Number three, when talking about the 12 steps, what is your favorite step? Uh, it's, it's really two of them. Um, it's eight and nine 
um, because I believe that that was probably the most healing was getting who I needed to make amends to and then making those amends was, um, and a lot of it, you know, had to do with myself included. So it was, uh, those were my two, uh, it was just a big turning point for me after that. I got a lot off my shoulders after doing that. So eight and nine together. Yeah. Eight and nine. That's where the separates the men from the boys. The (laughs) (laughs) Always, always do this. It's six and seven. (laughs) Meets the road. Anyway. But I, eight and nine, honestly, for me is when when I and I, of course you don't just finish nine overnight. But in that process is when I could start looking people in the eye again. Right. You know, I wasn't ashamed of myself because I had begun making things right, and so that that was a very freeing experience in my life as well. Yeah. And then the last question is, how can people reach you? Um, I have a Facebook page. Um, it's Facebook at Amazing New Book. Um, and you can reach me through there. And I always get, but when people write me questions about the book, they can, I always talk to them. I also have a website, um, suchunfortunates.com. Um, and you can write to me on there as well. Or if you go on Amazon and my name is Andrew Mann, um, and you'll see there's an author page link and you can write to me from there. So either way, I'll get back to anyone who writes to me. It takes a couple of days. I always get back to you, um, and I, I'll give you my experience, um, and I'll try to help you the best I can. A lot of people say I have a loved one, and you know I read your book, and can you offer some advice? I'll do. I'll do whatever I can to help out. Um, I'm hope Mike. One of my goals is to have my own rehab in the future, and um, I'd really like to do that and accept anyone I could, regardless of their ability to pay. So um, that's that's one of my big goals for the future to hopefully start. So, well, awesome, Andrew. Um, you know that that kind of covers everything that we're going to cover today. But um, I, I do want to just kind of let our listeners know one last time that you're the author um, of Such Unfortunates, Andrew Man. That's with two N's, correct? M A N N. They can find your book on Amazon. They can. Um, they can get that either by paperback or Kindle, but um, and it's you know, Audible too. They have it on Audible also as well. Is it you reading or someone else reading? Someone else doing it. Yeah, I started to, and then I was like, "I'll let somebody else do this." <laughs> I did the same exact thing, so I didn't. I just didn't go any further. It's like, dude, I hate hearing my voice. You wonder why I do a podcast, but um, you know, I, I, I don't, I've got a face for radio, not TV. So, anyways. Um, but man, thank you for coming on the show, spending your time, sharing your experience, your strength and hope, and hopefully you're a blessing to someone just like you've been a blessing to us. Great. Thank you guys. I really appreciated both of you. It was great talking with you. Absolutely. Come back anytime you want to have me on. So you're great. Awesome. Well, Jason, that brings us to the end of another one. I'm Roger. Jason. We're signing out. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics.